0: It is a great pleasure and privilege for me to bring the Word of God to you this morning, and I am especially excited to look at this passage that we've already been singing about uh, in our time of worship. Uh, I want to invite you to turn there with me, if you would, please. It's Jeremiah chapter 9. I think this is a favorite scripture for many of you, and uh, we want to start reading in uh, at the beginning of the chapter, chapter 9, verse 1. If you don't have your own Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles in the pocket in the pew in front of you. And if you have trouble finding your place uh, in those pew Bibles, it should be on page 637. Six, page 637, Jeremiah chapter 9. Let's read God's Word together. I'm going to ask you, if you're able to do so, uh, let's stand uh, as we read God's Word So hear the word of God spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Oh, that my head were waters, and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. Oh, that I had in the desert a traveler's lodging place, that I might leave my people and go away from them. For they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. For they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me, declares the Lord. Let everyone beware of his neighbors and put no trust in any brother. For every brother is a deceiver, and every neighbor goes about as a slanderer. Everyone deceives his neighbor, and no one speaks the truth. They have taught their tongue to speak lies. They weary themselves by committing iniquity, heaping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit. They refuse to know me, declares the Lord. Therefore... Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will refine them and test them. For what else can I do because of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully with his mouth. Each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart he plans an ambush for him. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? I will take up weeping and wailing for the mountains and a lamentation for the pastures of the wilderness because they are laid waste so that no one passes through and the lowing of cattle is not heard. Both the birds of the air and the beasts have fled and are gone. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. Who is the man so wise that he can understand this? To whom has the mouth of the Lord spoken that he may declare it? Why is the land ruined and laid waste like a wilderness so that no one passes through? And the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come. Send for the skillful women to come, Let them make haste and raise a wailing over us, that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined! We are utterly shamed because we have left the land, because they have cast down our dwellings. Hear, O oh women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of His mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and teach and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. Thus says the Lord. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair. For all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. It's a powerful Section of Scripture, let's go to God and ask His blessing on His Word. Lord, Your Word is like fire. Would You cause it to burn in our hearts today and purge from us all remaining dross of self-glory? Your Word is like a hammer. Would You use it to break our stony hearts, make them soft and malleable before You? We ask you to use your word to reveal your great power and your grace and to exalt your son in our midst. Would you teach us to see the greatness of what you have accomplished through his work on the cross, that we might worship you with true, humble, sincere hearts before you. We pray it in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and be seated, please. Sometimes we find a verse or a short section of Scripture that we really, really like, and we do various things to try to remember that passage and keep it front and center in our minds. So we may underline those verses in our Bible uh, to make them easier to find. We might post them on our bathroom mirror or over the kitchen sink, And all those things are absolutely worth doing, especially for a great, great passage like Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24. But when we do that, we also need to look and pay attention to the context in which those verses are found. Sometimes we find that our understanding may be off or misguided in some way because we fail to consider the context, and we need to adjust our interpretation of that passage in those cases. And then there are other times when we may not have misunderstood the passage, but when we see more clearly how it functions within the larger context, it drives the meaning of that passage home to our hearts with even more force and more impact. And I would say that is the case with these two verses we are looking at this morning. The idea can stand by itself, but within the context of Jeremiah chapter 9, understood in its place within the history of redemption, it takes on even more significance. God is declaring His purpose. A purpose that He is determined to accomplish, and therefore He's going to accomplish it. And that purpose is to remove human pride and to reveal the perfections of His own character. God is going to remove human pride and reveal His own character. We should make no mistake about this. The pride of man and the glory of God are irreconcilable forces. They are not friendly competitors. They are bitter enemies. On the one hand, man's arrogance and willfulness, hates any authoritative revelation that comes to him and says, God is more important than you are. And so he resists that revelation and rejects God's rule over his life. And on the other hand, God's jealousy for his name moves him to say, this is not going to stand. And what God is going to do to vindicate his name and demonstrate his righteousness shows us how seriously he takes the whole matter. So what I hope we will see this morning, by the power of God's Spirit working among us through His Word, is number one, how foolish our pride is, how destructive it is to us, and how offensive it is to God. But then number two, what a beautiful and amazing plan God has put into place to deal with our pride and to exalt Himself by revealing His glorious character. So I want us to consider the truth of this passage sort of in three stages this morning. First, I want to look at the content of verses 23 and 24 and see the absolute contrast between boasting in human accomplishments and boasting in the knowledge of God and His character. And then I want us to sort of back up or zoom out and see the context of those verses in chapter 9 which will help us to see more clearly and feel the force of this huge, tragic conflict between man's perspective and God's perspective. And then finally, I want us to turn to the pages of the New Testament and see the stunning and remarkable way that God has chosen to defeat human pride and exalt himself once and for all through the work of his Son. So, first, let's look at the absolute contrast. God rejects all human boasting, and God requires all to boast in Him. Verse 23 tells us what we are not supposed to boast in, right? The wise should not boast in their wisdom, the mighty should not boast in their might, the rich should not boast in their riches. And we understand this list is not exhaustive, it's representative. In other words, these are three really good examples of things that people in the ancient world would value very highly and seek after. They would respect men who had these things. And the smart, the strong, and the wealthy would typically feel that they were set apart from the common man by their superior status. Of course, all those things have their counterpart in our society today. We can think of NBA or NFL superstars who sign multi-million dollar contracts and feel they're entitled to act any way they want. We should also include the educated businessman who congratulates himself for achieving a certain level of success and looks down on others who can't seem to get their act together. Actually every level of society, every group, every subgroup has those who make it to the top of their particular level. And they use that as an occasion to boast in their own accomplishments and think of themselves as superior to everyone beneath them. And that's really the natural mindset that we carry through life. What we know, what we possess, what we achieve becomes the criteria by which we measure our status. And besides the ones who are mentioned specifically in verse 23, we could add things like this. Let not the talented performer boast in his talents. Let not the popular young person boast in his popularity. Let not the successful pastor boast in his ministry. All these things are examples, or at least they can be examples of what the Bible calls boasting in the flesh. It's taking pride in human achievement, human effort, human potential, which are all things our society tells us we should take pride in. But God tells us something very different. According to this passage, the only thing we are permitted to boast in is that we understand and know God. Who He is, what He does, what is important to Him. So that leads us to the second part of our contrast. God requires all to boast in Him. To counteract the three examples in verse 23 of things that that men are tempted to boast in, we see three characteristics or attributes of God in verse 24. And again, these three things are not exhaustive, but they are excellent examples that teach us to consider what God is like. They are rich words that describe the way He acts because of the kind of God He is. He practices Hesed, steadfast love. It's a word that occurs many times in the Old Testament. Uh, We saw it as Brett was leading us through the book of Ruth. Uh, The older translation of that word is loving kindness. It's the mercy he shows to those in need because of a voluntary commitment that he makes to them in love. He is also the judge of all the earth who will not fail to do what is right. So, he is described in terms of his justice and his righteousness. And it's not any outside force that moves him to act in such ways. It is his own holy character that causes him to delight in these things and exercise these qualities in his dealings with mankind. This is what he cares about. He's not impressed by any amount of wealth or knowledge that we accumulate. He doesn't stand in awe of any number of championship titles or Olympic medals someone may win. He is the self-sufficient God who puts His just and loving nature on display to His creation. And that's where we are commanded to make our boast. So what does it mean to boast in knowing this God? This word to boast is a, a very important word that shows up frequently in Paul's writings in the New Testament, which we're going to look at later. And I would say it's probably hard to translate that uh, that word into just one equivalent word in English. Sometimes the translators will say boast. Sometimes they'll say to rejoice. Sometimes they'll say to glory. And so I would suggest that the meaning of this word includes or, or implies at least three things. To boast in someone or something is to make that person or that object the source of your identity, the source of your security, and the source of your happiness. God is telling us not to search for our joy or our confidence or our significance in our own accomplishments, but in knowing Him, the personal God who made you and knows you and acts to reveal Himself to you. So here is the contrast God is setting before us. Boasting in ourselves and our own accomplishments or boasting in Him. And we need to see those two choices are set in contrast to show that they are exclusive of one another. We don't get to choose a little of one and a little of the other like we're walking through a buffet. Great thoughts of God will drive away great thoughts of yourself. And conversely, great thoughts of yourself will drive away great thoughts of God. So verse 23 tells us what we should not boast in. Verse 24 tells us what we should boast in. So now let's look at the context given here in chapter 9 and see what the people of Jeremiah's day were actually doing. Were they placing their trust and joy in the Lord, or were they looking somewhere else? And of course the answer to that is pretty obvious in the context we find in the rest of the chapter. So it brings us to our second heading, the tragic conflict. Man rejects the knowledge of God and follows his own heart. And God responds with consuming judgment. If we go back to verse 1, we see Jeremiah is expressing his grief. He is mourning over the condition of his people, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. This is written in the months and years leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. They are dark and tragic days. And of course, what brings all this calamity upon them is their own sin. Notice what Jeremiah says at the end of verse 2. In the beginning of verse 3, they are all adulterers, a company of treacherous men. They bend their tongue like a bow. Falsehood and not truth has grown strong in the land. And then notice the summary that comes at the end of that verse. Verse 3, they proceed from evil to evil and they do not know Me, declares the Lord. I think we could say this is the root cause of all the other evils that they are committing. They don't know God. And the problem is not a lack of information like they just don't know any better. This is the people of Israel. This is the people to whom God has revealed Himself in multiple remarkable ways. He's delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He's made His covenant with them at Mount Sinai. He's given them leaders to rescue them from their enemies. He has sent them prophets to warn them of their wicked ways. But see what He says in verse 6 keeping oppression upon oppression and deceit upon deceit, they refuse to know Me, declares the Lord. So this is a willful choice that they are making. He describes it in chapter 2 as forsaking God, the fountain of living waters, and hewing out broken cisterns that can't hold any water. Why would they do that? Why would they turn away from a relationship with this One who has shown them such mercy and such faithfulness, the God who overflows with steadfast love and offers them every blessing imaginable if they will just seek Him and remain faithful to Him. Verse 14 gives us a little more insight into this dreadful choice. It says, They have stubbornly followed their own hearts, and have gone after the Baals as their fathers taught them. That's pretty striking, isn't it? You know, our culture constantly tells us in movies, in music, in advertisements, on talk radio, it tells us that's what we should do. Follow your heart. Only you can know what's right for you. But God's word shows us over and over again what happens when people follow their own hearts. Here are the people of Israel. They are faced with the alternate claims of two competing choices. On the one hand, there is the all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful God who perfectly displays steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth. Then you have these filthy local bales who require the most abhorrent practices in exchange for vain, empty promises of increased fertility. And the people of Jeremiah's day are representative of the history of the entire human race because they say, yeah, we're going to go with the bales. We're going to choose gods of our own making because when we make our own gods, we think we can control them in a way that we can't control the true sovereign ruler of the universe. We think we can get what we want. So what is God going to do about it? Well, that answer is really clear in this chapter as well. He is going to respond with consuming judgment. God says, because they have done this, they've forsaken My law, they haven't obeyed My voice, they've followed their own hearts, they've gone after the Baals. Verse 15, Therefore, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And then he goes into this poetic dirge or lamentation, picking up in verse twenty. Hear, O oh women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of His mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come up into our windows. It has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the, from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the open field, like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather to them. She'll gather them. Listen to those words and ask yourself how how serious is God about showing the people of Judah their sin? How far is He willing to go to demonstrate the consequences of forsaking Him and following your own heart? That is the context that leads us right up to the verses we've been looking at that tell us not to boast in our own wisdom, our own strength, our own resources, but to boast in understanding and knowing God. We need to see these verses are not a foreign idea that somehow got dropped into this chapter. The context is all about judgment. Judgment. And we see that idea continues in verse 25 as well. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. And he goes on to include Judah in that list of nations because even though they take great pride and confidence in their their circumcision, they are actually uncircumcised in heart. So God is bringing judgment upon them for a purpose. And that purpose is to reveal the folly of, of trusting in yourself, of boasting in yourself, taking pride in yourself, and to show us where our trust and our confidence and joy should really be placed. So that judgment was carried out against Jerusalem, just as God said. In 586 B.C., the armies of Nebuchadnezzar broke through the walls. They burned the city, slaughtered the citizens, plundered and destroyed God's house, the temple. It's hard for us even to imagine the horror of that disaster, but just think of losing your home, your family, your church, your nation, and all the visible blessings of your relationship with God, all at the same time and in the most violent way possible. Any confidence the people of Jerusalem had in their king, or their army, or their military alliances was shown to be futile. And God's word was vindicated. But that's not the end of the story. Because the judgment poured out upon Jerusalem, prophesied by Jeremiah, did not solve the fundamental problem of the human heart. Yes, it illustrated severely and profoundly that man's glory is nothing and God's glory is everything, but it did not remove the blindness from man's eyes. It did not cure his stubborn tendency to elevate himself above his Creator. And so there are a couple of things we need to consider as we see Jeremiah's prophecy in the light of redemptive history. First, the destruction of Jerusalem in the 6th century B.C., is a picture. It is a precursor of the final judgment. The day of God's vengeance when He pours out His wrath on those who reject His glory and boast in themselves and follow their own hearts and make their own gods. And they receive exactly what they deserve forever in the lake of fire. And that, by rights, should be the end of the story for every one of us here. But it's not. Because God delights in showing his chesed, his covenant kindness, his steadfast love. And even though this chapter is full of God's judgment, there's something else we need to see. What is Jeremiah doing as he delivers this message? He's weeping, isn't he? He's weeping. This is not the cold-hearted factuality of the prophet Jonah that we're going to look at next week, is it? Forty days, the city's going to be overthrown, and I can't wait for that to happen. Jeremiah is God's representative. He is the spokesman announcing God's judgment, but he is also part of the people on whom that judgment falls. And when that hammer comes down, which you can read about in the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is the one who says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. You see, Jeremiah is a picture of someone else. Someone who also announced the doom of Jerusalem and the destruction of God's house. Remember, Jesus warned His listeners, speaking about the, ma- of the temple in Matthew 24, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. But He also cried out with broken-hearted compassion, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you were not willing. We're supposed to look at Jeremiah's ministry and the ministry of Jesus and see those parallels. The weeping prophet gives us a foreshadowing of the man of sorrows. What is relatively obscure in Jeremiah's prophecies becomes much more clear with the coming of Christ. So that leads us to consider the resolution of this great conflict in the following way. According to the New Testament the place where God acts decisively in judgment and mercy, the place where He reveals His character most fully, and the place where He removes all grounds of human boasting once and for all is the cross. Because a salvation accomplished partly by human effort, by human ingenuity, by human virtue... Well, that leaves a little room for human boasting, doesn't it? That's not the kind of salvation God accomplished at the cross. He accomplished salvation for His people by His power, by His grace, by His work alone. One man who discovered this truth and teaches it very clearly is the Apostle Paul. Of course, when we first meet Paul in the book of Acts, he is not... Paul the Apostle, he is Saul the Pharisee. If anyone had reason to boast in the flesh, it was self-righteous Saul. He tells us later in Philippians 3 about his impressive list of qualifications for self-boasting and how he came to view everything on that list differently as a result of coming to know Christ. So let's read these verses. Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. Again, if you're following along in the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 981. I'm going to start reading in verse 3. It comes in the context of warning, those, warning against those who boast in the flesh. Verse 3, he says, "...for we are the circumcision," meaning the true circumcision, "...who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus." That's our word there, glory in Christ Jesus. "...and put no confidence in the flesh." The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Notice a number of parallels between this passage and those verses in Jeremiah that we were looking at. Paul took pride in his Jewish identity. His defense of Jewish orthodoxy, his scrupulous observance of the law of Moses, and his passionate service for the God of his fathers. But when the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road, his Jewish-centered, law-based, self-congratulating worldview instantly fell apart. And in light of the revelation given to him, he began to realize the death of Israel's Messiah on the cross was the work of God that fulfilled what Jeremiah was talking about. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 and 31, Because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." And in Galatians 6.14, which we read earlier, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to this revolution in Paul's thinking, to boast in the knowledge of God who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness in the earth is to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the confidence that he had placed in his circumcision, his mark of true Jewishness, he saw was the equivalent of the wise man boasting in his wisdom, and the strong man boasting in his strength, and the wealthy man boasting in his riches. Everything that he once claimed as a badge of his superior status, he learned to count as loss for the sake of Christ. Christ. In the death of Christ for sinners, Paul found God's mercy extended to those in need. God's just judgment poured out upon His own Son. And His righteousness not only upheld, but given as a free gift to all who believe on Jesus. The words of Jeremiah and of the Apostle Paul are meant to lead us to ask ourselves some important questions. What am I clinging to other than the cross of Christ for my status, my sense of identity, my confidence, and my joy? I don't know if it's your career, your intellect, your talents, your politics, your reputation, whatever it is, it's a cheap and hollow substitute or knowing God through Jesus Christ. I want to be open and transparent with you this morning, my brothers and sisters of Redeemer Church. Uh, this will not be a surprise to those of you who know me well. What I have struggled with, really my entire adult life, is a desire and tendency to look for those things, not in Christ alone, but in a successful ministry. And I don't want to sound as if I'm ungrateful for the opportunities to serve that I receive here at Redeemer. I love teaching and preaching here. I love this congregation. You are incredibly patient with me and always uh, so kind to my family. But some of you know I have always had these ambitions for a kind of ministry that I guess sounds nobler and more impressive, things like preaching the gospel and planting churches in unreached areas of the world, and starting orphanages and Christian schools in third world countries. And I still believe those are things to which we should aspire with passion and zeal. But God has convicted me of how many of my plans are more about West Duggan's than they are about helping others see the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ. So last March, I was sick for a few days with the flu, and God used that time to work, I would say, very gently in my heart. I think I saw my own pride in the way I just mentioned a little more clearly than ever before. I was also reminded that Jesus died for my pride. And my pride, along with everything else, was covered at the cross. And so I began to write a poem. I was just crying as most of the lines of this poem came into my mind in a a single afternoon. I was trying to express what I was thinking and feeling at the time. And I want to read that poem to you now. How vain and proud my foolish heart. To think that I should make my mark and play the mighty hero's part, to save a world that knows not grace by efforts bold to run the race in strength and wisdom from below that tarries not your will to know. The lofty dreams I long pursued. The noble service offered you so quickly turned to worthless dust, betrayed by idols' greedy lust that seeks a throne not meant for me and raises doubts when I can't see the beauty of your sovereign plan wisely issued from your hand. Can this untrusting lump of clay possess the skill to stand and say, The potter does not know what's best and must surrender to my quest. O God, I know not how to start to rid such idols from my heart. What sword can sever deep inside these tangled roots of lustful pride? No word of self-resolve will do. Such power only comes from you. A cross a tomb, no, nothing less can lead me on to holiness and from my heart self-will erase and put Your image in its place. O Lord, this weak, divided heart needs grace for every broken part. Teach me to count my gains as loss and seek the glory of the cross. O Lamb of God, who paid sin's price, I long to know your sacrifice. The only cure for cursed pride is Jesus Christ, the crucified. I want to clarify that when we become aware of pride or other wrong motives tainting the good things that we do, it doesn't mean we give up on doing those good things. But it does mean we need to take time to go on our faces before God to consider who he is to confess our sin and seek his grace. And I'm confident if we did more of that and less of our busy activities we would see a lot more fruit in our personal lives and our relationships with others and our evangelistic efforts and our outreach as a church. The message we proclaim is one that humbles human pride and exalts a mighty Savior. It teaches us not to elevate ourselves above others or look down on others because they don't measure up the standards or expectations we think everyone should live up to. When we are harsh and impatient because people around us are not as far along as we think they should be, it suggests we haven't come very far In understanding this message or applying it to ourselves, it suggests that we are looking for our joy, our confidence, or our identity in something other than Christ alone. But God's word confronts our foolish way of thinking with his great purpose. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. But far be it from me to boast Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me. And I to the world. I want to pray together with you. Uh, We're going to sing after uh, after we we close in prayer. Then we'll sing one more song. And then Dale's going to come up and and, uh, lead the Lord's Supper for us. Let's pray to him now. Lord, we can only ask that you would act in accordance with your tender mercy to humble us and reveal your greatness help us live in light of your revelation to us the revelation given most fully and supremely at the cross of Christ thank you Lord Jesus for dying for us paying that price of all of our sins including our pride, our boasting our arrogance by which we tried to lift ourselves up against you Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your humility. Not seeking your own interests, but seeking the interests of others. Humbling yourself even to the point of death on a cross. We trust in you, and we ask you to teach us, help us, to trust you more. We pray in your name. Amen.